Chairman, Mr. Attorney General, I'm going to take us out of the weeds here because I think the American people deserve to know what happened in the election for the highest office of the land. And I'll just give my views very quickly and not ask you about these topics. Uh, I think your four-page letter was clearly a summary, and that's why Director Mueller called it a summary. I think when Senator Van Hollen and Representative Crisp asked you if the special counsel disagreed with you under oath, you had to go out of your way not to at least mention the fact that he had sent you this letter, but you didn't mention it. And then finally, I would say that we must hear from Director Mueller because in response to some of my colleagues' questions, you have said that you didn't know um, what he meant or why he said it, and I believe we need to hear from him. So I want to first start with Russia. Uh, Special Counsel Mueller's report found that the Russian government interfered in the 2016 presidential election in a sweeping and systematic fashion. Later, Director Ray has informed us that 2018 was a dress rehearsal for the big show in 2020. Director Coates, the president's uh, intelligence advisor, has told us that the Russians are getting bolder. Yet for the last two years, Senator Langford and I, on a bipartisan bill with support from the ranking and the head of the Intelligence Committee, have been trying to get the Secure Elections Act passed. This would require backup paper ballots. Uh, if anyone gets federal funding for an election, it would require audits, um, and it would require better cooperation. Yet. The White House, just as we were on the verge of getting a markup in the Rules Committee, getting it to the floor where I think we would get the vast majority of senators, the White House made calls to stop this. Were you aware of that? No. Okay, well, that happened. So what I would like to know from you as our nation's chief law enforcement officer, if you will work with Senator Langford and I to get this bill done, because otherwise we are not going to have any clout to get backup paper ballots if something goes wrong in this election. Well, I will, I will work with you uh, to uh, enhance the security of our election, and I'll take a look at, at what you're proposing. I'm not familiar with it. Okay, well, it is the bipartisan bill. It has Senator Burr and Senator Warner. Its support from Senator Graham was on the bill. Senator Harris is on the bill. And the leads are Senator Langford and myself. And it had significant support in the House as well. Uh, the GRU, the Russian Military Intelligence Agency, targeted the U.S. state and local agencies along with private firms uh, that are responsible for electronic polling and voter registration. Um, the GRU accessed voter information and installed malware on a voting technology company's network. I understand the FBI will brief U.S. Senator Rick Scott and Florida Governor DeSantis on efforts by Russian hackers to gain access to Florida election data. Will you commit to have the FBI provide a briefing to all senators on this? Um, I, I just on the Florida situation? On the entire Russia situation. Sure. Including the Florida situation. Sure. Okay, that will be helpful. Again, uh, Senator Langford and I are trying to get our bill passed. And I think if everyone hears about this, it may help. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10... We did not know each other, and we could not speak to each other, because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA, I believe the 
them when they said they were sleeping on concrete floors. I believe them. Children being separated from their parents in front of an American flag. I believe them. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, it didn't happen, and here we are. I believe these women. You're wrong. I feel extremely lucky to, to be here with all of you fighting for justice, for equality, for the right for us to equally exist in this country. There were 329 uprisings, 257 cities within four and a half years. And neither Martin nor Fannie had any control over that. We might be headed to the promised land of speaking the truth and fighting our external liberty once we internally liberate ourselves. But their children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. And may God bless us. And may God bless us. wonderful day today in Iowa, and um, people are coming out like we have never seen before. Uh, we've had two really important discussions um, with on mental health and on addiction, um, and I want to thank your legislators for being part of that, um, as well as your local officials. Uh, we had an incredible discussion, and I see Janice over here with Alaska. Uh, Janice uh, was there and gave some really moving remarks today um, about what it's like to have someone in your family that is struggling with mental illness. And one of the reporters asked me uh, just now, why are you taking on that issue, you know, like, as in, like, where is it in the polls? <laughs> that is not how I'm running this campaign, my friends from Iowa City. I am taking on the things that I hear from people and things that need to get done. And when at every single one of these town halls or meet and greets, Someone in Iowa has asked me about addiction, perhaps because of my remarks during the Kavanaugh hearings. Um, someone has asked about addiction, or they have asked about mental health, and when I found out that because of your Republican governor and your Republican legislature that Iowa is still last in the country when it comes to beds for mental health, but all these people in this room has this big heart, I think it is time for a change, all right? So, I think you all know I announced my candidacy in the middle of that snowstorm. Yep, I could have gone inside, but is that what a good Midwesterner would do? No, it is not. When the snow comes, you stay in the snow. And that was, began our journey a journey of grit, a journey which I acknowledge I am an underdog in this race, but every day we are getting stronger and stronger, and just so you know, every race that I've run, I start out as the underdog. Uh, when I ran to be the first woman county attorney in Minnesota's biggest county, I was running against someone who had much, much more money than me, double, triple the money that I had. But guess what? I won. And you know how I won? I won the Iowa caucus way. I won by putting up uh, 3,000 lawn signs and by doing uh, 20 parades and by doing 85 pancake breakfasts and being beach. And I ended up winning 
by something like eight votes for precinct, I always thought if I would have done 75, I would have lost, okay? So I understand that hard work and how you get out there and meet people one at a time and convince them of how you can win. I was actually, uh, when I started this journey, I went to Atlanta and met with Jimmy Carter, which was wild at age 95, I guess, came on a he, um, he likes the color of my stickers, uh, uh, and he talked about all the houses he stayed in Iowa and what he'd done and how he ran this grassroots effort. And by the way, one of the most fun things now is he sends me emails that are, and JC, and it's like Jesus Christ is sending me an email. Whoa! Uh, but he talked about that and how he was such an underdog when he came into this. And then when I ran for Senate, it was the same thing. I was running against a congressman, right? Congressman. Um, <clears throat> Get some water here, sorry. I was just thinking of that experience. <laughs> I was running against a congressman who um, was telling the world that he was going to be able to win that seat. Um, and he didn't. And he didn't because we believed in the power of grassroots politics. We believed in the power of people coming together that we could actually do this and run. And we believe in the power of standing on stages and talking after you've talked all day and you're going to lose your voice, right? That is what we believed in. Um, and so we ended up winning that race too. And I always tell people that, yes, um, on that race, it was so hard for me to raise money because no one could pronounce my name. So I would call everyone in the country. And I finally gave up one day and I just looked at my address book and I called everyone I knew in my whole life. And that is when I said, what is still an all-time Senate record. Listen up, students. I raised $17,000 from ex-boyfriends. <laughs> it is a good lesson for everyone. You try to keep those relations strong, right? And as my husband has pointed out, it is not an expanding base. All right? That is the journey that I've been on. And when I announced that in front of that river in the middle of that island, I did that because I want to make the point uh, that it is time to cross the river of our divides to get to a higher plane in our politics, right? Um, and it is also about our community and what brings us together. And about a mile and a half from there was this bridge. And you know that 35W bridge. You know that because 35 runs through Iowa. And that bridge collapsed in the middle of the Mississippi River. It was just eight blocks from my house, eight-lane highway. It was a bridge that everyone used, so it's a story about infrastructure, yes, and you know that was one of the things, thank you one person, uh, clapping, for, clapping for infrastructure, but we all know when we see what's happening with our locks and dams, when we see Davenport, when we see Western Iowa, right, um, where you have those levees that are breaking, and you look at the roads and bridges, and you look at the schools that are crumbling across this nation, and you look at what's happening with transit. I, it is time to have a big infrastructure initiative. But I mostly wanted to talk about, I mostly did that because I wanted to talk about community. Because that day the world was riveted on my state. And what they saw was an off-duty firefighter that tethered herself to the side of the river and dove in and out, dove in and out of that river looking for bodies, looking for survivors in those mangled cars and trucks. What they also saw was a tasty truck that had been burned. And what happened there was such a sad story. A guy in that semi was going over that bridge, and he could have saved himself. But he decided he didn't want to ram into this school bus. And he veered off, and he burned to death in that cab. But he saved all the kids in that school bus. 
There was a school bus driver on that bus when it plummeted 30 feet down and was hanging precariously on a guardrail. And that school bus driver was named Hernandez. And he could have just ran off that bus because it looked like it was going to fall over in the middle of the Mississippi. Instead, he stayed on that bus and he got every single kid off that bus to safety. 30 kids. That is what community is about. And we have a guy in the White House that doesn't believe in that sense of community. Uh, that fractures that community every single day. And I am running for President of the United States because I believe in that bringing people together and uniting, and I believe we can do better. So let us start with my background. My background, my background is different than a lot of other people running for this office. Uh, my grandpa was an iron ore miner. He ran, he worked 1,500 feet underground in the mines his whole life. Uh, he never got to graduate from high school, even though he was a good student, uh, because he had nine brothers and sisters. And he was the oldest boy, and his parents were sick. They died. He worked underground every single day. Youngest sister, Hannah, they had to bring her to an orphanage in Duluth. She was eight years old. He vowed he would get her, and two years later, he borrowed his Chevy, and he went, and he got her, and he brought her back. He married my grandma. They had two kids, my Uncle Dick and my dad. And my dad was the first one to go to college because my grandpa saved money in a coffee can to send him to a two-year community college. He got his two-year degree, and then he went to the University of Minnesota. Okay, not as good as the University of Minnesota. <laughs> so he goes to the University of Minnesota. He gets his four-year journalism degree. He goes from this ramshackle mining town to interview everyone from Chicago Bears coach Mike Ditka to Ginger Rogers. Okay, that, that's the American dream. Then we go to my mom, who grew up in Milwaukee, the site of our 2020 Democratic Convention, by the way. Grew up there. She saw, she had poor, she wanted to make her way in the world, and she looked over the border to Minnesota because they had our union friends, Stronger Unions, all right? She went over there and she became a teacher and she taught second grade until she was 70 years old. And I still meet people that say my mom was our favorite teacher. And her favorite thing that she taught was the Monarch Butterfly Unit, as we see the spring coming. She would literally dress up in a butterfly outfit with a tunic, uh, with antennas. Uh, she would have these little shoes on, and she would have a sign that said, To Mexico or Bust, because that's where the monarchs went. So I always knew she thought it was funny to go grocery shopping uh, when that was done in that outfit. But I never knew why she did this until the week after she died. And there was a visitation, and this woman came over, and she's crying. I don't know what's going on. She's got her son, who is severely disabled, standing next to her, older son. And she finally says, this is my son, and he had your mom in second grade. And his favorite thing she taught was that monarch butterfly unit. <laughs> he loved monarch butterflies. And when he graduated from high school, he got a job bagging groceries at that store around the corner. And every year when your mom taught that unit, afterward she would go over to the grocery store, stand in his line in her outfit, and give him a big hug. So that was my mom. And I literally stand before you today as the granddaughter of an iron ore miner, as the daughter of a teacher and a newspaper man, as the first woman elected to the United States Senate for the state of Minnesota, and a candidate for president of the United States.
about. It is a country of shared dreams and shared prosperity. It is a country where no matter where you come from or who you look like or who you love, you can be president of the United States, all right? So that's the first thing I believe. The second thing I believe is that we had a president, Barack Obama, it was David Brooks, conservative colonist, who once said, we don't know what we got till it's gone, right? We had a president that came in that brought decency and dignity to the White House, and he came in at a horrible time for our country. We were in an economic downturn, right? And thanks to the workers, thanks to our businesses, thanks to the policies that were put in place, we are at a point of stability, right? Our economy has gotten better. But that means this is a moment of opportunity. And instead, this president is governing by chaos, when I think we should be governing from opportunity. And to me, that means taking on the challenges in front of us. And that is what I preach. That is what I talk about everywhere I go. The first challenge, climate change, all right? Because and having a voice, having a voice from the heartland is going to be meaningful here. Not just meaningful, it's going to be able to get things done. Yes, we see rising ocean levels in the Greenland ice sheet, where I've seen it once, an unbelievable massive piece of ice that's starting to melt. Yes, we've seen hurricanes, but you know what? We've seen this in the Midwest, right? We've seen it with the tornadoes that we've seen. Uh, we've seen it with those fires that we've seen. Uh, we have seen it with the floods. And I will never forget meeting Fran, uh, this incredible woman from the prairie. She was out in uh, Pacific Junction, outside of Council Bluffs, and she had this pair of binoculars. It's sleeting outside. We're saying she looks like a woman who's been there like 300 years, okay? <laughs> but she's there, and she tells me, look the binoculars. This is my house that I got with my husband, and we live there with our two four-year-olds. And she said, I love this house. It has stood here strong for a century. It has horse hair in the plaster. This house is strong. But yeah, what happened this year, a flood came in, and she kept looking through those binoculars, and she said, I just want my kitchen. I love sitting in my kitchen. And then I said, well, is this the river then? Because I was kind of thinking, well, I guess you built your house by a river. She said, no, no, that's not the river. That's the flood. She said, the river is two and a half miles away. Now, we never thought the river would come to this house. That is what's happening right now. And if you don't believe that, if that doesn't motivate you, think about those wildfires in Colorado. Think of what would happen when those firefighters died in Arizona. Think of that dad in Northern California who's driving through these lapping fires, and he's got his kid in the front seat where their house is probably burning behind him, and his daughter doesn't know what's happening, what's happening, and he sings to her. That's a video you can watch as they drive through that wildfire. Climate change isn't happening in 100 years Climate change is happening now, all right? It is happening right now in this country. And that is why when I am your president on day one, I will sign us back onto that international climate change On day two, I will bring back those clean power rules that would have made such a difference in this country. And by the way, like Iowa, I come from a state that has small electric co-op. I get all those issues. We can make this work. We can get things done. And then I will bring back the gas mileage standard rules. Um, who doesn't want a car with higher gas mileage standards? I guess not Donald Trump. He doesn't care because he flies down to Miralago or something like that. He doesn't care. Those are the things that we're going to have to do and sweeping legislation to get this done. All right. Challenge number two. Challenge number two is our health care. And while there was a lot of attention right now on that bar hearing, right? You know, 
Well, guess what happened while that was going on? The Justice Department filed a legal brief in the Fifth, Fifth Circuit, which is Texas, filed a legal brief to completely repeal the Affordable Care Act, right? So if you thought this was just Donald Trump speaking at rallies and getting people chanting, they are actually doing it. They are trying to take away the protection so people don't get kicked off their insurance for pre-existing conditions. I remember a mom in a small town parade who was pushing her kid, who was a toddler, and she said to me, this is my son, he's got Down syndrome. This is what a pre-existing condition looks like. This is it, this is a pre-existing condition, and I will do anything to fight for my son. So we need to fight for that little boy, and we're gonna fight for America, and we're gonna beat these guys because they are not gonna take the Affordable Care Act away from us, all right? And that means, by the way, bringing down premiums, bringing down premiums with a public option with Medicare or Medicaid, that's what we wanted to do in the first place, and it means taking on the pharmaceutical company. The pharmaceutical company. That is what that is. I mean, seriously, insulin used to be $17, 18 bucks a vial, right? And now it is 1,200 bucks a month. I brought a woman to the State of the Union named Nicole Smith-Hope, and she sat there to look down at Donald Trump because he had promised her he was gonna do something about pharmaceutical prices. What happened to her? Her son aged off her insurance at age 26. He was a restaurant manager at a restaurant in the suburbs. And what happened to him? He didn't have the money to pay $1,200 a month for that simple job of insulin, and he started rationing it, and he got the numbers wrong, and within a few months, he died. That happened in our country, right? That's happening all over the place. And that is why when I am your president, I will tell the world that the pharmaceutical companies may think they own Washington, but they do not own me, right? And this means negotiation, negotiation of Medicare, drugs from other countries like Canada and Minnesota, we can see Canada from our porch. You know, so I can see this like right over the border and the kind of prices that they have. It means stopping pay for delay, something I worked on with your center, Senator Grassley, and there are people, I know who they are, that are willing to do this and we need to get this done. Um, today, when I talked about mental health and I talked about addiction, this is something that's personal for me and it's a big part of healthcare right now in this nation that's getting neglected. It's personal for me because my dad, he struggled with alcoholism the whole time I was growing up. And he, I saw him, he was a mountain climber. Um, and literally I saw him climb to the highest mountains but sink to the lowest valleys uh, because of his struggle with alcoholism. He had two DWIs when I was in middle school, but then he got another one in the 1990s, uh, right around when I was getting married. And that was something uh, different at that time. He had to choose between jail and treatment. And our family sat there with him and I told him everything that had happened to me, like so many of you that may have had alcoholism or drug addiction in your family. I told him about those Christmases where we would look over the sofa, hoping he'd come, peering out the window. Uh, the graduations when he was drunk. The times I had to take the key away from him um, when he was trying to drive up to go to see my grandma. And I tell those stories today because he is someone that finally got that treatment. In his words, he was pursued by grace. He was pursued by grace because of his faith, uh, because of his community, uh, because of his family, and because of treatment. And I believe that every American family has the right to be pursued by grace, not just ours. So, 
by the way, he is now. I love my dad through the whole thing, bad, good, whatever. It's made me kind of understand people can be, you know, can make mistakes, and you still love him, even people in Washington, D.C. Um, and so my dad is now 91, and he is in assisted living. Uh, in his words, they don't have a lot of drinks around here, so he's okay. Uh, but in truth, his AA group still visits him at the assisted living. Okay. So what do we need to do here? Well, I know Iowa took this on at the legislature. That's good. People were talking about it. But as your legislators will tell you, right, Joe, right, Molly, they didn't put the money where their mouth is, those Republicans and that governor. They didn't do that because this needs resources. You only have, I heard today, 64 treatment beds, your lowest in the country when it comes to beds for mental health, right? Despite all these great things the state has done, you're lowest in the country when it comes to mental health for treatment beds. So this is what we need to do. One, prevention. And this means things like suicide prevention, when we've seen uh, highest rates of suicide we've seen in our country, 30% increase in just 16 years. Uh, suicides with veterans right in the parking lots of veterans facilities. Suicides with farmers, LGBTQ youth. This is what's happening right now in America. So this is about suicide prevention, having counselors in school. It's about treatment beds. It's about stopping this ridiculous idea that you can't get Medicaid funding without a waiver if you have over 16 beds in a facility, which is a big deal. Yeah, thank you, someone who understands that issue. Um, uh, this, is about, uh, this is about making sure uh, that when people recover that they have a place to live, uh, that they are accepted, uh, that if they're in the prison system and they're a nonviolent offender, uh, that they're able to get out and they're able to live a protective life, right? That's what this is about. So, how do we pay for it? Well, this is the funny thing about Donald Trump. He always claims he wants to do stuff, infrastructure, everything, but then he never shows how he's going to pay for it. I will, and guess how you pay for this? There are pharma companies that have been making millions and millions of dollars off of opioids. They should be paying for this, and they should be paying for it now. They should be paying conservative. If you put a two-cent fee, they just did this in New York State, Per milligram, that brings us $40 billion for what I'm talking about. If you take the money from those lawsuits that are going around the country and you have a master settlement like we did with tobacco, conservative estimate, another $40 billion. So I have it, and I show how I'm going to pay for it, because I actually don't think you guys should be paying for it, okay? I think that we should be paying for it from the people that caused this epidemic and caused this to begin. All right. You can use that money for mental health reform. Another issue, workforce training. We have a lot of job openings in this state and in this country, um, and we have students that want to have those jobs. So one, increase the federal minimum wage. Smart idea. Yeah, thank you. Uh, two, make sure that we are matching up the skills and doing more with apprenticeships and community colleges. I can talk the talk. My own sister didn't graduate from high school. Uh, she had a lot of trouble, and then she ended up getting her uh, coming down to Iowa, and she worked in, this is another great Iowa story. She worked in manufacturing, she got the courage to go get her GED, she then got the courage to go to a two-year community college, she got that degree, and then she got her four-year degree, graduated with the highest score that year in accounting in the state of Iowa, and is now gainfully employed as an accountant. So I can thank you for that. So this is about seeing that there are many paths to success in this country. This is also about immigration reform, right? Uh, immigrants, if you look at the way Donald Trump talked about this with his $8 billion wall, right? That's all he wants to talk about. Yes, we need order at the border. Yes, we need security. 
But guess how we actually do pay for security, but we don't need that wall. Uh, what we do is we do comprehensive immigration reform because we need workers in our factories, we need workers uh, in our farms, we need workers in our hospitals, in our nursing homes, and we need a path to citizenship. That is comprehensive immigration reform. It reduces the debt by $158 billion. It passed in 2013 with a large number of Republican votes. And you need a president that basically says, immigrants don't diminish America, immigrants are America. challenges of consolidation, the challenges of tech, that we have to put in place privacy rules, that we have to do something about antitrust. Do you know the first state in the nation that took on antitrust? Iowa. That's right. The Granger movement, right? You guys were standing out there, well not you literally, uh, with pitchforks, right? Uh, because there was too much consolidation and no one had choice and the prices were too high for the farmers and then the union struck in Chicago and that is how we got our antitrust laws and we are literally entering another gilded age and I have the legislation and the pro yes I would cry too over consolidation so, so big is big and things are too big and we need to improve and take on the antitrust laws alright so with that I'm going to end with this tell you what you want to hear, and that is this. We need someone that can win and beat Donald Trump. All right. So let me tell you, let me tell you how you do that, okay? One, you have an optimistic economic agenda. Hillary Clinton uh, ran a strong race. You saw her debate. She was so strong in those debates. She had good policy ideas. She would have been a great president, but no one had ever run against the likes of Donald Trump before, right? And now we have all learned, everyone has learned a lot. We have learned that he wants to distract us every single day. He wants to send out a mean tweet. He doesn't even care who he pisses off. He just sends out a tweet so that he controls the news cycle, right? He doesn't care if it's bad policy. He doesn't care if it makes our allies angry that we need uh, to exist in the world. He doesn't care about any of that. And so once you understand that, you decide this, which, by the way, Iowa did in 2018. You have candidates that have their own optimistic economic agenda and stay on it, just like Abby and Cindy did, right? And that is how Dave has won his seat every single time. He understands agriculture. I'm on the agriculture committee. It's one of my major priorities. You stay on that optimistic economic agenda. And then when he does stuff, yes. Sometimes you have to be very strong, stand your ground, and be out there. When he takes on immigrants, when he takes on John McCain, who was a good friend of mine, and after he'd been dead for eight months, he decides he's going to go take them on, I guess because he thinks that's helped them with that base. That is an evil thing to do, all right? So you stand up to that. You stand up. But sometimes, guys, you ignore him, all right? You do not have to respond to every single thing that he does. And sometimes I think a very good approach, which I hope you've noticed I'm good at, because I've used it in many races before, is that you use humor, all right? So when he went after me, when I made my announcement in that blizzard, and he made after me uh, for talking about climate change, uh, and he called me Snow Woman, whoo, that was kind of good, actually. I waited a few hours, and then I said, you know what? Donald Trump, the science is on my side, and I'd like to see how your hair would fare in a blizzard. <laughs> Mr. Like Umbrella Man. Okay, so 
that is what we're going to do here. And I have the track record, and not everyone has this. We've got a lot of great candidates in this race. But you know when he almost won Minnesota, you probably saw that, in 2016. And then I came back. And by the way, when I run, I just don't run for me. Just like I did last time in 2018 in Minnesota, I run for my colleague. As you know, Al had to leave, and it was a really hard time in my state. And Tina came in. Not many people knew who she was. So I ran for her. I ran for our governor, who is brand new, Tim Walls, running right there on the Iowa border. Yes. I ran for him. I ran for a whole ticket. And guess what happened when I was at the top of the ticket? I didn't just win big and win every single congressional district for the third time in a row, including every rural district, including Michelle Bachman's. But we, we, we flipped the House of Representatives in the Minnesota House. We flipped that. Hit as 
for Stitcher Smart Radio, Potable, and more. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. In the making. 